0: Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. All right, back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. This is actually take two on this interview, and just like last time, there's no way in hell I can do the standard introduction that I normally did, because fuck, on the other end of the line, I've got Mr. Bill Booth. Bill, how are you?
1: I'm doing fine. Dean, how are you doing? I am Other doing side f- of the world. Fantastic!
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it, it's a real privilege to not just get you on the podcast once, but twice,
1: twice. Why, thank you. I'm sorry the first connection was subpar, but yeah. that's the way it goes yes. where it was. <laughs> well, you were out
0: enjoying the Adirondack <laughs> Mountains,
1: weren't you? I was I was we've got everything there but good internet.
0: Oh well fair enough. Well
1: it's, it's blue sky, green green mountains <laughs> but well, no internet.
0: Definitely worth the wait for this one. Definitely. I've got a billion different questions and and all kinds of stuff we want to talk about for sure. Um I think uh Again, I'm going to start off just like I did last time. I want to talk right off the bat instead of delaying and waiting. I want to talk about pretty much the most iconic thing that I personally can think of in skydiving, um, and it's all because of you. And it's that beard.
2: <laughs>
0: where, where, where did the beard? Where did it? Ha- how did it happen? Why? Why the beard?
1: Um, I got out of college. I was a school teacher, a high school band director. I had to have my hair very short. And, uh, when I started my own business, I said, no one's going to tell me that I got to, you know, how I'm going to cut my hair, what I got to wear it. Like it was, you know, it was the seventies and hippies and rock and roll and all that stuff. Ugh. And so I just uh, stopped shaving and I haven't uh, shaved since it's 45, 46 years. I'm not sure exactly what my face looks like as a matter of fact.
0: Right. Well, after 46 years, I can't, uh, I can't imagine anybody does. <laughs>
1: I have probably forgotten how to shave.
0: I would so. imagine. I would imagine. Although I'm guaranteeing uh, you're pretty good at braiding that uh, beard when you're out jumping and flying in the tunnel.
1: I I I am. I once had a, a beard three-ring entanglement on opening and my head was pulled up to the right and I couldn't look down to the left. I had to make all right turns down and from then on I braided it, you know, it was That's would have been a funny fatality, but uh, luckily I got it down okay.
0: That's pretty fucking it's pretty ironic that the two most iconic things in skydiving the three ring system and your beard almost completely fucked you.
1: <laughs> oh they did. They did. It was not a good combination. No doubt. Um, Wow. Well, so let's let's go ahead and jump right
0: in and, and uh, get into how you got started in skydiving. I mean, for, for my generation of skydivers, and well, actually, lots of generations of skydivers, our first introduction to the world of skydiving was you in front of a, a brown wood panel wall making a video telling us about what we were going to start doing. Uh, but how did the sport start for you? Well,
1: I was a... Um a freshman in college and I uh, was a scuba diver and I was headed out to a spring to make a scuba dive, uh, driving my car when a, um, a parachute landed on the road in front of me, almost ran the guy over, I picked him up, took him back to the airport. And, um, two hours later I made my first jump. Um, I wasn't scared at all at the time. I was like 18, 19 years old. Mm. I landed so hard it knocked me out. And when I woke up, my instructor was pulling my parachute out of a cow's mouth. It was eating it. He was kicking <laughs> him in the stomach. And for some reason I made another one. I wasn't scared. Thirty years later, this guy shows up, it's got to have to land. You know? Wow. And said, you know, I was looking my old log books and the thirtieth anniversary of your first jump is, is coming up. I said, you know, I don't remember the date. Well, he says, You've got it right here. And looked it up, and it was April eleventh, nineteen sixty-five. Wow! And then I got scared because I looked to the left. My instructor had six jumps when he trained me. <laughs> uh, no rules.
0: <laughs> Holy shit, man! I mean, all that brings to mind for me is that old T-shirt that said, "I remember when sex was safe and skydiving was dangerous."
1: That that's true. I mean, if I look at the statistics, skydiving is more than twenty times safer it was when i started now how crazy is um, that it is kind of crazy um a lot of things get safer some things get more dangerous <laughs> base jumping sure. got more dangerous with wingsuits and instead of making it safer <laughs> you know wingsuit could fly you away from the cliff but what do you do you turn around and come back and Try right. to uh, trim your fingernails the rocks as you're flying by. Right, and get even um,
0: closer. Well, it's it's <laughs> kind of funny that skydiving became so much safer over the years. It's got to be doubly strange for you because big, one of the biggest reasons that it got safer was because of you.
1: Well, well thank you. And it was a lot of other things, too. You know, um, I was into skydiving at the right time. When I started skydiving, all there was was military surplus equipment. Hmm. The paracommander had just been introduced. Um, Up until from 1918, when Leslie Irvin made the first, you know, ripcord uh, freefall jump, uh, until I started skydiving, really nothing had changed. Skydiving was, or parachuting pretty much, was for uh, saving your life. Or for military purposes. It wasn't for fun. It wasn't for sport. And until it started uh, becoming a sporting activity, the gear was good enough. It did save your life. Okay? It got...
2: Oh,
0: I'm losing you there, Bill. Yeah, um, I can't quite hear you. It sounds like there's something against your uh, microphone.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm talking the same.
2: Yeah, uh, when there you I,
1: go. When it, when it was saving your life in an emergency or for military, the gear was good enough. But when it became a sport, the gear was no longer good enough. Right. People wanted more performance. They wanted to do it a lot of times, so they needed a land off They wanted lightweight gear, and so I think just at that transition. So-
0: Hey Bill, it sounds like uh, there's something messing your microphone up a little bit because you're coming in and out.
1: Strange. Uh, nothing I can see. I'm in a quiet room.
0: Huh. And, okay. Uh, is the computer getting moved around at all?
1: Well, the computer is on a um, is on the arm of a couch, but not moved around too much, and I'm at same distance from it as I was.
0: Okay. Yeah. Try just trying to to not let the the computer move because the oh, no, the. What could... The microphone was going in and out, pretty bad.
1: Pretty bad. Well, I can't figure that one out because at least the speaker's not. You're very clear. So, where should we start?
0: Hmm. Um, um, yeah. No. So, back to question at the at the beginning, you were talking about uh, surplus gear.
1: Yeah. So, from 1918, when Leslie Erman made the first free fall ripcord pilot chute jump, uh, until I started jumping. Parachutes have been used to save your life in an airplane mishap or for military. Sure. I started when it became a sport. And when it became a sport, the gear needed to perform better. So you could do a lot of jumps. It needed to be prettier, lighter. Um, and so I got to be on the ground floor of changing from emergency slash military parachuting to sport parachuting. That must have that's been- where the innovation needed to happen.
0: 60s and 70s yeah and it must have been such a crazy transition i mean because you you obviously knew what needed to happen but nobody was making this stuff i mean you guys were making this stuff up as you were going i mean you built some of your own first equipment right
1: i did i wasn't happy with um with the way things were going within maybe the first year or two after starting jumping there were several things that, that bothered me, the, the, not the least of which is you had to learn to jump alone. You learned to fly and drive with an instructor. We'll, we'll get to that later. That, sure. that bothered me. It took me a long time to figure that one out. The other thing that, that bothered me was pilot chute hesitations. Mm. Um, I got rid of that with a hand to pilot chute. And then, remember when um, I started jumping, the emergency procedure was, if you had a malfunction on your big round parachute, you opened your front matter reserve container, no pilot chute, and just <laughs> threw out the reserve and shook it like a bed sheet in the wind. We could get away with that because um, the malfunctions were very tame. When you have a low-performance canopy, you have low-performance malfunctions. Sure. As canopies became higher performance with the PC and then the RAM air, there ain't no way you right. could throw out a reserve and not have an entanglement. Plus, another thing happened, the introduction of the piggyback system, which meant you could no longer pull and punch your reserve. You now needed to get rid of the main. The Capewell release, which was really a canopy attachment system, mm. was two one-pound blocks of metal on each shoulder, and it was never designed to release a malfunction main canopy. It was designed to release you while you were being dragged after landing on your round parachute. Sure. So the thing you needed was a single point release system to quickly get away of your, get rid of your main parachute. And that's where the three ring came up. I tried a bunch of different ways. The three ring was actually my fifth design uh, for a single point release system. Uh, So the first two things I did was get rid of the hesitations with the hand deploy pilot chute. And then, um, be able to get rid of your uh, malfunction very quickly with uh, one motion of one hand. Sure. The capo releases. The point releases took six motions using both hands. <laughs> it took a lot of time, and it was a good day if they both released at the same time. Wow! You can see that. So, no. It's funny. We'll we'll get into boost boost law number two later, but let's say that the hand deploy pilot, you got your main parachute deployed. 250 feet faster because you had no hesitation. Hmm. The three-ring allowed you to release a malfunction 250 feet faster. So you're 500 feet better off, right? Right. Big safety improvement? Wrong. People just started opening 500 feet lower. <laughs> of course. Do you
0: have like a uh, an engineering background? Is this something that came uh, through schooling or you're just naturally inventing shit?
1: I have, I have always liked engineering engineering uh, I would always win the science fair in school uh, for my senior project uh, I built a rocket that broke the sound barrier holy uh, shit I made a primitive computer I built a primitive computer I tried transmitting voice by light waves all this in high school and I went to college um, in aerospace engineering but on a music scholarship And ended up graduating in music because what I wanted to be was an astronaut. I think we all did then. (laughs) And the best way to do that was to fly in the Air Force, get jet time. And if you failed at being an astronaut, you could always be an airline pilot. So um, that's what I did. I enlisted in the war in Vietnam, but before I could finish my pilot training, they didn't need any more pilots. They were winding the war down. (laughs) <laughs> and so I ended up being a school teacher, <laughs> wrong fallback. Wow. And, um, but it's still jump time. Wow. And so I kind of turned my engineering inclination into uh, making gear for myself to make it more easy, more comfortable. Now, when you, easier, when, you, more comfortable.
0: when you started working on the gear and stuff, by this time in your sport, was it still just something you were doing for fun or did you know you were kind of in that lifestyle? I mean, I don't know what the lifestyle was like back then because we're still talking the late
1: 60s, right? Oh, yeah. We're, we're, I, I started, yeah, I started, uh, I was out of college by 68, 69 or so and uh, teaching school in Miami for about three years, uh, having a student business, putting on static line to students. The first thing I started making was custom deployment bags for people. And then I made a student rig because I didn't really like the military stuff and wanted something prettier. And then I made a rig for myself, took it to the land. I was jumping and someone said, Hey, that's neat. Where'd you get that? And I said, I made it and he said, can I buy it? And I said, no, nah, I don't think so. And he says, I'll give you a hundred bucks. <laughs> Okay, so I never put the hundred bucks home, built another one. And then I had a rig plus hundred dollars, and I liked that. <laughs> yeah, and pretty soon I was making more. So my typical week was five days at school, teaching a skydiving class on Thursday night, spending Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the drop zone, repeat, and working every night. Then making gear. Wow. So it was uh, pretty much seven sixteen hour days a week. Ah, uh, try and do everything, and I started making more money in the garage making gear than I was making a school teacher. I didn't have to put up with three hundred monsters every day, <laughs> so I, um, I, uh, I decided to give up the teaching and start gear full time, and that was probably about nineteen. 19- 74 or so
0: okay now this is back before uh the FAA had gotten too involved with gear like this because you basically just built a rig and went and started jumping it Uh, when did uh when did it start to become like a hardcore business for you when you're talking TSOs and licensing and all this craziness
1: well I made the first 350 rigs before getting a TSO TSOs existed but up until that time the FAA had never TSO'd a parachute container system without a whole parachute mm. i mean parachutes have been tso'd as a unit uh canopy and everything like this so i got the, i think the first tso to make just a container system wow. uh, it was very really hard for them to figure out how to deal with me now for for uh, those that are it was listening. new and so there wasn't sure
0: now for those that are listening and don't know what it is uh, explain what a tso exactly is
1: technical standard order it's it's um A process for manufacturing parachutes for the approval of the manufacturing of your parachutes Uh, it has a a bunch of tests in it uh, that you have to uh, put your parachute systems through Um, and they were again made for 28-foot round parachutes that's pretty much all there was Mm. Um, and so it was kind of hard to bring the FAA up to speed we're still working on it The first TSO I got was TSO C23B. We're up to, I think, F now uh, in revisions. Every time when Tandem came in, we had to change the TSO to allow Tandem to be possible. Hmm. Um, And we've tried to get it right. It's still confusing. Um, I've been in a lot of the committees that that wrote all the TSO rules. And now it's getting very, very complicated. It's almost too much for a new person to start now. Uh, because you have to have such a large initial investment in testing. And so that, of course, stifles creativity. It's the same with the airplane business. We haven't had a new engine since World War II Hmm. because the the TSO – This makes it too complicated. Sure. Um, Or in that case, it's a different process, but you get the idea. Sure.
0: Well, now, when Um, when you were getting started back with the gear manufacturing, you were pioneering a lot of this stuff that was coming up. So, I mean, clearly, the FAA couldn't know what to do with you because they were seeing stuff for the very first time. Um, I mean, you you were at the cutting edge of it, and they had no clue. So, I can imagine they probably had no idea what to do with you.
1: They really didn't. The – the old TSO rules didn't really fit the modern gear. And that's, we've been, we've been trying for about 30 years to, because it, getting a new TSO system through takes about 10 years and the gear for a while was changing every six months. Sure. So it was very, very difficult. At first, there was no possible provision for tandem. I had to make up my own tests and sell them to the FAA saying, this is how we ought to Um, TSO tandem gear and so they gave me sort of a provisional TSO under my modification of the TSO C23B and it wasn't until 10 years later that we had the tandem TSO written.
0: Well, now, wasn't that, um, uh, um, <laughs> I think I was probably the benefactor of that test phase because weren't we, for the longest time, tandems were allowed to be done even in commercial operations only with kind of a special dispensation. I'm guessing that was when that was going on.
1: Yeah, it was, we, Ted Strong and I went to the FAA. We were scared that people would start taking their kids and uh, everybody tandem on gear that wasn't made for it. So many people would get killed that tandem would be outlawed. And both Ted and I saw the future of tandem mm. and didn't want it ruined. So I we went to the FAA and told them it was illegal and that we needed an exemption. Mm. It maybe wasn't illegal because there were no laws against it. <laughs> right. So they issued us um, an exemption for one year. It took them 20 years mm to get out of the exemption phase. <laughs> we had to write a small book. And every tandem jump we made back then, it was really about 10 pages of paperwork per jump. Wow. Had to be submitted to the FAA. I never looked at it. That's, That's just crazy. Moved.
0: Now, how how did the, the idea of tandems start? I mean, I, I don't know enough about the history of tandems to be able to say, you know, how it all began. Where was the first idea of, you know, strapping somebody else to you?
1: Well, the first tandem jump that I'm able to find uh, made commercially was 1910. Wow! Uh, two acrobats, a man and a woman, dropped from a balloon on a trapeze, and advertised it as a, a, a parachute built for two. Huh. So the idea has been around a long time. I've got 12 movies where the airplane was crashing; it was one parachute and two people. So Hollywood used it again and again and again. Sure, but it wasn't practical. It was a stunt. Sure. So Tandem, for me, started in in, um, 1972. Paragear Equipment Company had a sale, 44-foot cargo chute, drops a Jeep, right, (laughs) Um, for $44. So I bought one. It came in about a five-foot-tall rucksack. Oh, my God. So I decided to hook it to my chest strap of my piggyback system, have someone in the airplane hold the bag. I jumped out, and this 44-foot parachute which is about 100 feet long i think played out and open, sort of and i floated down under it and i said i could take half the drop zone under this so the next day uh this guy named stan carter and i tied our chest straps together with the risers in this and went up and jumped it and this is 1972 so i made my first tandem jump in 1972 under a 44 foot round
0: a 44-foot, non-steerable. 40, non-steerable, uncontrollable round, and you just tied
1: each yep. other together. Jesus Christ. Tied each other together. That worked fine for a few times, and then someone dropped the bag. We didn't have it attached to the airplane. And I forget who this guy was. He was with me. We're facing each other now, have a hook knife in each hand, um, holding onto each other with the other hand, tied together with the chest strap. And here comes the bag next to us in free fall. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I remember looking at me. We I said, "All right, Booth. What's the emergency procedure for this?" And I just yell, "Cut!" And we just slashed our chest straps off. And because we had belly bands, we survived. Okay, Cheers. that ended it. Now, this four, five years later, nineteen seventy seven, um, one of the uh, the jumpers had a kid with cerebral palsy in a wheelchair, and he kept kind of, you know, pointing at this guy and trying to say jump. So this game was Kirk, Kirk Hanbury. And we decided, okay, let's take Kirk. I was jumping a, a paraplane. Uh, one of my employees, who was Kirk's adopted father, and Kirk together weighed 10 more pounds than me. Wow! So we decided to make a small harness for Kirk and took him up and put him in an 11th way for his 11th birthday <laughs> and got on the cover of Skydiving Magazine. So that was the first tandem gear I specifically built in 1972. And we started taking kids right and left, but our weight limit was about 210 pounds. Mm. Okay. That's what the gear can handle. And doing it with larger people, the rammer gear wasn't ready yet. Uh, back then, um, a piggyback system weighed about 50 pounds for mm. one person. If we tried to double the size of the parachutes under that construction method, the damn rig would weigh 100 pounds mm. and the rammers couldn't take So I had to wait, um, till 1983, uh, the military started requesting bigger parachutes for heavier weights and they got, uh, parachutes that were good for about 300 pounds. Hmm. So when I saw that, I grabbed one and uh, made a harness for my secretary, uh, Connie Simpson, and we went and did a hop and pop. Um, we were scared we'd get slammed into each other, but there was no problem. Mm. Everything worked out really fine. Ted Strong, that same summer of 1983, took his secretary. And then in early fall, Ted and I went up and made a long free fall with our secretaries and did a hookup. And we called it the first two before the first <laughs> tandem relative work. Wow! Norm Kent filmed it, it's a famous picture. We didn't realize how fast we were going. Mm. Uh Uh, It didn't dawn on us that we'd fall a lot faster in tandem than we did solo. Sure. Instead of 120, we were going near 170. Uh, And Ted and I, this was before the idea of of putting a drogue on tandem was used. Um, We blew up about half of our parachutes uh, in the first few years. Uh, The joke going around was the purpose of a tandem main is to slow you down enough so the reserve doesn't blow up too. (laughs) So – Common, common. So we pretty limited tandem to hop and pops, and and I started doing terminals. Um, I knew the uh, drogue was going to be needed, but there was never going to be a drogue on the reserve, so I needed a main that didn't blow up a terminal. Mm. Otherwise, we really couldn't do tandem safely. Sure. Um, and so after I got about 10,000 jumps on uh, incredibly stronger parachutes, uh, PD started getting into this. It really started off PD's business. Of, of making these military parachutes stronger to take the velocity. So after we had about 10,000 jumps in a row without blowing up a parachute, um, I put a on. Now we could go slowly, mm. same same speed as everyone else. Photography was easier. Uh, people didn't get hurt. Sure, sure. <laughs> and everything was fine. And we're still, we're still using the same reserve, you know, uh, Forty years later, sure. Well,
0: I think I remember in our last conversation you said something along the lines of that the drug was both the best and
1: the worst thing that ever happened to tandems. Um, Oh yeah, as soon as we put the drug, the fatality started multiplying Mm. uh, because drug adds another level of complexity. It's like the term factorial. um, When you add one more number, if you have you know two things that happen to happen and all of a sudden you make it three things that have to happen things don't get just a little more complicated they get a lot sure when we put the drogue on the function tree the possible malfunctions on tandems multiplied by a factor of four hmm. you know some people say mathematicians told me by a factor of 76 wow you know it depends on how you do the math well, so uh pretty soon we were starting to have like seven tandem fatalities a year hmm. um and after the fat, first 10 years of this, I analyzed all the fatalities, and the majority were drug-related. Mm. And I to solve all those problems and came up with the Sigma system, uh, which gets rid of most of the drug problems. Sure. And Tandem became reasonably safe. And,
0: you know, it was um, funny. I I, I initially so, got my tandem rating on the the older vector system, and uh, maybe it's just me remembering uh, things being more dramatic than they were. But I remember there being a branch on the malfunction tree that dead ended.
1: <laughs> yeah, we couldn't figure out what to do. Problem <laughs> um, at well, first is what what Ted and I both did is we took a normal rig that closes normally with four flaps, a loop, and a pin, and we added a drogue onto it. So that the drug release was separate from main container opening. In other words, the main container could open while the drug was still connected mm. and the drug could be released without opening the main container. Uh, what I did with the Sigma is I made the main container opening and drug release the same thing. Mm. So I got rid of out of sequence deployments, which were killing people. Sure. They always have. Uh, the reason for the hand deploy pilot sheet going back was to make sure that your pilot sheet was inflated before your canopy came out of the container. Right. Okay. That's the purpose right. of the deployment bag is to make sure that the lines are tight before the canopy sees air. That was a big invention, the bag, mm. before my time. Now, I, I, I fixed the sequence again in, with the hand deploy pilot chute and then again in tandem with the Sigma. I want things to happen in a specific order. Yeah, very much so.
0: Now, in regard to especially the upgrade from the older Vector system or uh, the Strong system to the Sigma system, obviously, it's had a dramatic effect on the safety of uh, tandem skydiving. But the business volume, when you guys were getting started with this tandem stuff, obviously, you knew it had a bit of a future. Did you ever imagine it would become what it is
1: now? I thought it would be, well, I thought it would be a little bigger, but my main disappointment in tandem is it has not created that many more permanent skydivers no. because of the way it's used as, uh, you you know, one and throw away. Um, I've often said you need to take those people that have just made a tandem jump and put them in a lock them in a room with the timeshare salesman, you know, <laughs> to sell them <laughs> AFF.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I disagree. When, now, when they yeah, started I, up – uh, you remember the uh, the AFP program that was going around for a while where people were doing the initial training, but doing it on a tandem. Uh, do you think that that was maybe underused? Because I thought that was a great way to try and get people a little bit more involved with their tandem experience, which might get them to want to, to jump on their own.
1: Well, the, the big problem with tandem systemically is it's too easy. You do not have a lot of time and effort invested in your first jump. mm like you had to with static land AFL, all right? And because it's so easy and you have so little time at the drop zone, uh, you don't get quite as attracted to to the skydiving. I think people want more of a challenge. Sure. And I really thought that you should do probably three tandems to get your canopy control because um, – in all of skydiving training, is no way to learn can- canopy control. No. And tandem was – that was the other thing that was good for and it. It's not being utilized for that at all.
0: Yeah. Um, it's
1: I'm- being used as a – a one-time ride.
0: Yep. I mean, I did my AFP program when I started jumping. So the first three jumps that I did were tandems, but those were, that was literally the only, uh, canopy instruction I got was very brief, uh, you know, on, on the landing of the second and the third one. Um, so you're right. I, I went right into it, not really having a clue what was going to happen once the parachute was over my own head.
1: Well, luckily canopies are simple, but canopies have become more dangerous as they became smaller. And it, it's become nearly half of our fatalities are under fully opening parachutes. Yeah. Uh, fully open parachute. Oh, it, it's a shame. If I could come up with an invention that would cut fatality rates in half, I'd be a real hero. Well, here it is. Don't swoop with small parachutes. Right. Because people won't do that because it's a lot of fun. Sure. And you can't tell a Scott his behavior is risky because he knows that. That's why he does it. Exactly. I often speculate. If we got rid of all fatalities, no one would jump anymore because the the risk would be gone. Right. And a lot of people do it just to rush in the risk.
0: Well, and I'm sure you've Um, you've seen this probably a lot more than me is that every time there's a fatality, there's a spike in business because people realize, fuck, this is still dangerous. Let's go jump out of an airplane.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's boost second law. As skydiving gear becomes safer, people take more risks. Do riskier things to keep the fatality rate level. Sure. We have an acceptable fatality rate. Um, And I mean, I hate to say it, one is too many, but we have an acceptable fatality rate in driving. There will be, you know, X number of people killed every year driving. Mm. We accept that. We don't ban driving, we understand it. Sure. Um, And it's a funny trick, humans, to have acceptable fatality rates. When we have wars, we say, well, it looks like in the Normandy jump, there will be a 40% fatality rate. And that's acceptable to some people. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no. (laughs) I don't, I mean, again, that that goes back to when you started skydiving, the odds were so much more against you not twisting, breaking, or killing yourself um, that uh, it took a real... A ballsy motherfucker, basically, to go out and decide that they wanted to be a skydiver. And nowadays, it's, uh, I mean, skydiving, obviously, we've made it extremely safe. It's still dangerous. But compared to what you guys were doing, it's its a pedestrian stroll down the street.
1: It is. When I started, there were maybe 2,500 members in USPA. It was called PCA at the time. Now there's 35,000. The year I started jumping, there were 58 fatalities. Last year, there were 18. Hmm. Doing the math, it's incredibly safer. Oh yeah, um, which well, is I, I really love it. Well, really love that it's safer. We we start going to always have fatalities. Yeah, well, but, and um, and uh, I. I, I
0: I've, I've uh, um, you know, been the benefactor of the myth that skydiving is still a lot more dangerous than it actually is. And, of course, especially when you're a younger tandem instructor or camera guy, you want to get laid. So you let everybody think it's just as crazy dangerous. But, of course, skydivers in general are extremely safety oriented because that's how we're trained. And the equipment and the training has gotten so much better that it's just inherently much safer than most of the stupid shit we do on the ground.
1: It is. Uh, it, you know, I was stupid enough to think at first I could make gear so safe that no one would ever die. Mm. And then looking at statistics, I realized that under 5% of their fatalities are gear-related. 95% are humans screwing up. Sure. So, so let's say I could make ever malfunctioned. Yeah. I would lower the fatality rate by 2%. Mm. If I could make people malfunctioned, We could literally uh, bring it down by 90%. Sure. And your podcast is valuable for that in in that people learn things. Sure. Educating skydivers and forcing them to train on emergency procedures is the best thing we can do to cut fatality rates. Absolutely. Well,
0: Um, train, 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 and never get complacent, which is, in my personal opinion, that's the biggest killer is complacency.
1: There's nothing more dangerous than someone with 2,000 jumps that's never had a malfunction. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, One of my favorite sayings is that most fatalities are caused by decisions people make on the ground before getting in the airplane. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, And you can... Through the fatalities, you can see a lot of that. Now, uh, it's true. Being
0: uh, uh, being at the forefront of the equipment side of things for so so many years, um, obviously there've been more than a handful of fatalities on gear that you helped design and manufacture. That's got to be tough to to take, isn't
1: it? Oh, well, I remember the first person that went in on one of my rigs. I was absolutely devastated. Not that I enjoy it now, but it's um, uh, you become a little bit immune to it because you've got to accept the fact that the gear isn't perfect and people aren't perfect Mm. and uh, we love the sport. People are going to die doing it. It seems inevitable, just like they're going to die driving. Sure. Um, Right now, making one tandem jump is 17 times less likely to kill you than driving 10,000 miles a year, which is the average person. So we accept a risk by driving our cars for a year that's 17 times greater than the risk we accept by making uh, a single tandem jump. Sure. Um, So we've pretty damn safe.
0: Yeah, well, and I I suppose Uh, um, from your side of things, uh, um, you have the benefit of also knowing how many lives you've saved with the innovations you've come up with. I mean, between the three-ring, the tandem system, getting safer and safer with Sigma, and then, of course, the Skyhook, which I want to talk about as well. I mean, you're talking just about uh, an enormous safety margin just shooting through the roof, and that's basically because of the stuff that you guys have come up with.
1: Yeah, and we'll throw in the automatic opener. We cannot really uh, – that – you know, but the automatic opener doesn't make gear work better. It makes people work better. Right. It simply pulls the ripcord, doesn't it? Right. You know? So it does a people function instead of an equipment function. Sure. So I almost keep it out of the equipment realm. I put it in the people realm. <laughs> yeah, because it does the job that we're um, supposed to do. We're supposed to do and we don't. Mm. Um, that's one – my crusades was to raise the opening altitude to 2,500 feet so we could set these automatic openers up at a grand because there's been 12 people bounced when the automatic opener fired at 750 feet. That's sure. just too low. Yeah. You know, so many little things go wrong. A pilot shoot hesitation can kill you at that altitude. Sure. And so we've accomplished that. And, uh, I'm just hoping that people set their automatic openers just a little higher, give up that uh, half a second of free fall. Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm right there and, with you. I mean, if yeah. I want more free fall, I'm gonna get it at the beginning of the next jump.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh you know, we I was I was uh looking at um uh, at saves on on, on Cypresses and realizing that the average jumper had well under a ten second canopy ride. That's cutting it close. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, <I'm> sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's too much. And,
0: and to yeah. be
1: perfectly honest, one of the things that I
0: enjoyed most in the sport uh, was as the higher performance canopies came out, uh, and they were opening softer and sniveling longer. Uh, opening altitudes were getting higher and higher to you know offset that. So it became very commonplace on a free fly to track off at five thousand feet at dump by four thousand feet, which I loved because I was a tandem camera guy. So as soon as the tandem opened up, I opened my parachute. I had never seen two thousand feet in free fall. Why would I do that? I'm going to open up the parachute and take care of housekeeping and all that. So I loved that those altitudes were going up.
1: Yeah, I, I always loved. I can remember my first ram. Right, I went from a um, a twenty eight foot round to a para commander at um, let me see about fifty jumps, hmm. and then I went to a Delta II para wing. After about 250 in the paracommander, a triangular parachute, I put 350 in that. And then I went to my first Ram Air. And I can just remember the feeling of flight on that Ram Air. Couldn't go to terminal yet. We didn't have sliders. Um, I love Ram Air so much. And I loved relative work that I started using my Ram Air on relative work. And in my logbook, I counted 10 times when I was knocked unconscious on opening uh, because we didn't have sliders yet.
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ. So you knock yourself unconscious on your first jump and kind of set the theme for your entire time in the sport.
1: <laughs> I looked in my, in my early logbook there. I got my, my first paraplane with rings and ropes reefing, which was, you know, just barely kept you alive in a three-second delay. And so I did about 30 of them. Then I did a terminal. Then I did 300 three-second delays before my next terminal. <laughs> apparently, it was a recovery time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Well, so you, you kind of fell in love with, with
0: all different aspects of the sport for different reasons. I mean, you enjoyed the relative work and the free fall, but you were loving the Ram Air Canopies. So you kept bumping into problems. and But you kept bumping into problems that were separating oh. your enjoyment, so you just decided to fix those problems. How
1: cool is that? Well, you know, the, the biggest problem I didn't solve, I uh, was the slider. Mm. I got hit so many times so hard, I can't believe that the slider wasn't, you know, just knocked into me. Mm. Then, after it came out and everything was beautiful, I'm reading old patents and found out it was it was already invented in 1939 <laughs> and forgotten. And I went through all that pain and suffering from not knowing about the history of the parachute. And therefore, I've read every patent there is, hoping there's another gem like that that's been (laughs) forgotten. So far, I haven't found it. Well,
0: yeah, you had said uh, uh, you said earlier about speaking with TSOs, and in our previous conversation, you said that one of the really disappointing things about skydiving right now is that no one's working to come up with new things because there's no it, it's, there's almost a wall against uh,
1: innovation at this point. Pretty much, you make your most of your innovation when you first start. That's how you break into anything, um, and it's hard for people just starting with good ideas. You see. To, to get going the existing companies have a real interest in the status quo hmm. and this comes back to another one of my sayings all right is is the experts or i can pretty much say the majority of people are always wrong about everything <laughs> uh, everyone thought that 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 the uh you know the paracommander commander was the best parachute that ever happened they were wrong people thought that that ripcord deployed mains were the best it would ever be they were wrong um And so just pretty much everybody is always wrong about everything, especially the experts. Mm. And so the existing companies, the experts have a real interest in the status quo. They won't want to be disrupted. You imagine the disruption, the hand deployed uh, pilots you had on the existing parachute industry. Oh, yeah. Within a year or two, they realized that they were out of business. Everybody. All right. And I realized it, too. So I just gave away the hand deploy pilot chute to the entire oh. industry. I oh. just couldn't see being that disruptive. Sure. Never charged a dime for it. You know, that was when I was young and foolish. When the three ring came out, again, I could own the whole entire industry. But this time I licensed it for like $5. <laughs> <laughs> Very stupid. You know, we'd be we'd be having this talk in my yacht now if I had any business sense. Sure, sure. But, yeah. Um,
0: I don't think the sport would uh, have nearly the same landscape that
1: it does. No. Every new invention is disruptive. It disrupts the entire industry. And um, it can be a killer uh, when someone comes up with a new technology. You know, there's that story about someone inventing a 100-mile-per-gallon carburetor and getting killed by by GM, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely.
2: That's
1: the way it works. People want to keep it like that. Yeah, Um, for
0: sure. Now – Speaking speaking of innovation and uh, stuff taking over, what's your thoughts on the, the wind tunnel?
1: Oh, the wind tunnel is, is the greatest training aid for free fall ever. Uh, it's funny to watch tunnel rats, you know, that started at age six, go up and make their first skydive. Hmm. you got got to keep reminding them you've got to pull the parachute. you got to pull the record, <laughs> yeah, really, because they just want to do it forever. But they're absolute experts. I I watch a kid with a lot of wind, you know, a thousand hours of wind tunnel time, give him a tandem, put him up in AFF and he's doing everything he wants to do. You know, he doesn't need any training. Sure. Except, you know, how to pull. (laughs) Right. And uh, that's the best. So the tunnel is a wonderful training. It is an entire sport on its own. Sure. Um, and And then people, things in the tunnel, and then they bring them out into free fall and start doing them there. And they're driving us crazy with gear. The thing that's getting me right now is angle flying. How do we keep the damn rig shut at the angles that the wind is hitting the damn things? Right uh, now, I started jumping uh, when piggybacks first came out. There were no riser covers; toggles were just there because we just went out and fell for years. When people started doing what was called sky dancing, or now free flying, um, toggles started blowing out and getting entangled with stuff so one of my first inventions well the the reason the vector was made in the first place was to add riser covers to cover the toggles and the risers so that people could change their body positions without getting killed Mm. and so people for riser covers were a major invention of mine um and in in the terms of the vector was, was made like that and um Certain things in in the Vector 3, again, we went there, the tuck-up-bottom flaps, the tuck-under-reserve-pin flaps. Mm. They're made so that wind can hit them at 200 miles an hour in every direction without blowing flaps open. Mm. So the gears responded to what people do. And then when wind tunnels came in, it got really crazy. We've had to, uh, well, riser covers. They went from Velcro to tuck-tab now to magnets. And the nice thing about the magnets is you can put in two or three, and they can be stronger or less, depending on how you're going to use the rig.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, because just doing hop and pops, you don't need riser covers at all, as, sure. as you see with the, uh, the people who are CRW. But if you're going to do speed skydiving or angle flying, you need really, really tight sure. riser covers. And, and the right. magnets adapt, and they don't wear out, Right, uh, and they don't cause problems. We've had people break femurs because one riser cover is stuck on a fast deployment, sure. causing the parachute to come out of the bag with one group of lines two feet shorter than the other group, causing it to dive into the relative wind and cross-load the harness, and you break your leg on opening.
0: i tell uh, you what. I mean, uh, as so- – <laughs> You've had to dig through so many different scenarios and so much shit that can go wrong and then counter those with the way that you're designing the equipment. I mean, it's got to be mind numbing trying to figure out all the different ways that something can fuck up.
1: Well, my, my, uh, I really should hire a lot of idiots. I always say the idiots are a genius. We think something is perfect until we put it in the field and it gets halfway across the world and then the malfunction shows up. The first person that twisted a belly band and towed a pilot chute, just, I couldn't believe it. You know? (laughs) But then I started believing it and I started designing for humans. I didn't design for the easiest and best, you know, engineering of the gear. I started designing gear for people who screw up. Sure, sure. So that even when it's screwed up, Even when they screwed up, they wouldn't be killed. So the least likely place you would ever think to put a hand deployed pilot sheet is on the bottom of a container. You Mm. can't see it. With gloves on, you can't even feel it. It should be up front in the belly band where you can protect it. Hmm. But no, the belly band ended up the worst. And the place that we thought was worst ended up the best.
2: Yeah, because of humans.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely the the only way to Oh yeah. It's, it's absolutely flawless. Now, speaking of, of having to try and come up with different ways to counter people doing stupid shit, uh, eventually that transitioned into you guys also coming up with the
1: Skyhook. Now, how did that come about? Because that's been a big deal. Well, The Skyhook was, was, um, was designed for tandem. Tandem canopies are big, and tandem has a large delta V problem. Different speeds, a range of speeds where you're going to have to open your reserve. Mm. On a regular rig, you can open your reserve at 20, 25 miles an hour if the main is really big. Not anymore because they're spinning so fast that 20 is gone. Sure. Or you might be going Yay. 120 at terminal. Tandem is 20 miles an hour to 170.
2: Mm.
1: Okay. So you've got to make a parachute that opens a little bit softer, plus tandem parachutes are bigger. Mm. Now, you can't put one pilot chute that's good enough for 20 and 170, if it doesn't pull too hard at 170, it won't pull enough at 20. Mm. Pilot chutes are, are a real compromise because you never know at what speed you're gonna deploy your reserve. Right. So we accept the compromise, go to a mid-range pilot chute, so it pulls a little too hard at terminal and not quite enough at, um, at, at a uh, breakaway from a fully open canopy.
2: Mm.
1: I wanted a system that deployed the reserve with the same force on all speeds, hmm. all right? And I came up with the Skyhook. But let's go back to tandem. Um, when you break away from a fully open but malfunctioned main, it takes three seconds to get your canopy out of the bag in tandem. And in that three seconds, three different tandem pairs had tumbled through the reserve lines, resulting hmm. in fatalities. Sure. I needed a way to direct bag that tandem reserve for the low velocity breakaways. And it's the same as a direct bag static line. What it does when you jump out of an airplane and you're main in a direct bag is it gets the lines away from your body so fast that you can't entangle with them. Sure. And that's what the Skyhawk was. I replaced the airplane with the the main parachute. Hmm. And what I found out was if you break away from a fully open canopy, and we'll say this is in sport mode now, it's a half a second to line stretch. If you deploy it from a bag lock, if a half a second the line stretch hmm. so what this god does is it it puts the same force on the reserve deployment every time sure you don't have the pilot chute can under too big or too small and that's because a big fully inflated malfunction pulls harder than a bag lock
2: hmm.
1: all right automatically your pilot chute decides sized to your velocity <laughs> you know? sure sure and that's what it was for and so I never thought of using it on um, on sport rigs because the difference in velocity is not great enough to cause serious problems. Right. Although a lot of people have gone in on line stretch. I've watched quite a few. Sure. So to test it, we didn't want to put test jumpers in tandem rigs, so we let them use their own gear and put skyhooks on it. Hmm. And after you've done one skyhook breakaway, you're scared to jump without it.
0: Oh, yeah. I um, mean, the first time I had yeah, a tandem just, cutaway – the first time I had a tandem cutaway with a, um, a skyhook, it was so anticlimactic. I remember thinking, well, fuck, that was it? Because you get yourself amped up for this cutaway, and then you're just
1: under a reserve, and your main is just right over it there. It didn't used to be. You just had to fight three seconds of uh, waving your arms and legs to try to stop yourself from tumbling after a breakaway. Sure. Um, with, with a stool. You know, it was not helping. Um, yeah, so... Then these people, the test jumpers, started asking for them on their own rigs. And at first we said no, and then we said okay. <laughs> I was worried about spinning malfunctions in skyhooks. Sure. And, but after watching, I find out that you're actually less likely to have line twisting in your reserve, not more. One um, in Dubai, uh, what was his name that broke away at the Dubai swooping meet because he had a canopy collapse uh, uh, I know, at I know very low altitude? About.
0: Yeah, I can't recall yeah, his name. Yeah, it's That really
1: started people on that. Um, but then the Skyhook is complicated, all right? So I had to design it in such a way so that it did not impact the user, the jumper.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, they can't use it wrong, all right? Um, it impacted the rig it had to be packed right. And that's why you see a lot of uh, colored instruction uh, labels built into the rig. The real question was, okay, it worked. Now, are riggers going to screw it up halfway across the world when they've never seen one before? Right. And that question took many years to answer. And the answer is apparently not because no one's been killed by one yet. Sure. Um, so apparently, I – this was my latest, you know, thing. I was more into human engineering, ergonomic engineering, and I think I got it right uh, because it simply is designed to get out of the way before it malfunctions in some other way. Sure. In other words, it, you're you're being held on by a small thread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my, uh, well, and often will say it didn't work. I well, said, well, your pilot sheet was pulling so hard it wasn't necessary. Hmm. Remember, it's only. When your pilot, she's not pulling very hard. Sure, so, you know um, I, the the
0: the uh, best skyhook story that I've gotten, and we talked about this last time, uh, took place in Cross Keys uh, when uh, it was the relative workshop and PD tour was going on, and I think this would have been 2005. Uh, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, this is when uh, two. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To when two staff members decided to cut away obscenely low. And of course there's the famous picture of uh, uh, Will Lajeunesse at in line stretch at treetop level, um, which is just insane because I was standing next to Egon Sussman at the time who was screaming, don't cut away because it was too fucking low. Um, now this all happens and I think probably a year goes by and I hear a story about you uh, and your opinion of that jump. And what I was told was that in public, you'll say that it was the stupidest damn thing that you'd ever seen, and you can't believe they did it. But in private, you're like,
2: fuck yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. no, I, looked at, I said, I couldn't pay someone to do that. Go down to 100 <laughs> feet and break away. Yep. And that's what they did. Yep. I don't know if yep. they were quite sober at the time. But then I was told they're both base jumpers, and that was a high jump for them. Yep. Base yep. jumpers jump at 200 feet all their frigging time. Yep. Um, that's another yep. pet peeve of mine. They're using one parachute. We learned 100 years ago that parachutes aren't safe enough to jump with only one. Right. But they do it, and right. they're very careful with it. They've got to be. Um, so you're. That's off to
0: them. No, no base jumping for you then, huh?
1: I I, I I, made a couple, but like off El Capitan, right at 3,000 feet and two parachutes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it, let let's say that there's a malfunction that happens every hundred thousand jumps. To the average jumper, they dismiss it. Right. But to me, who has millions right. of jumps made in my gear every year, it happens to me twenty times. Sure. <laughs> so I'm I'm simply in tuned with the rare malfunctions, and I, I tell people it doesn't matter if it's a common malfunction or exceedingly rare. You can be still just as dead. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many times do you hear about a fatality that, it was the strangest thing and nobody could ever see that coming? Well, after a while, that's kind of how they all go. Well, nobody saw this one coming. Well, shit, you
1: know. So many jumps being made now, uh, I feel like offering a reward for someone to come up with a new malfunction. (laughs) (laughs) They, They have, but there have been so many people made so many jumps that now they're pretty much repeating other people. I always say when I die skydiving, I want it to be original, you know? Right, right. Well, speaking of that, though, I mean, you're still out doing... Grandpa Grandpa was eaten by a lion in safari. That's the original way to go. Right, right. Well, see, now, uh,
0: in regard to skydiving, you still do a lot of original shit, though. We talked last time that you've done a lot of uh, destination skydives now and some pretty amazing ones at that. I
1: love
0: that. I realized
1: uh, last year that... I jumped on five continents, and there were seven. Plus, I had six jumps in the North Pole. So, when the pyramid jump came up, I hopped on that. That's been politically impossible my whole jumping career. There it was, and I recommend everybody do that while it's politically uh, available. It's like asking to jump over Washington D.C. You just no way to get permission. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, a an Air Force, an Egyptian Air Force general's son is a skydiver. So take advantage of it. He got dad's permission. Yeah, right? as a
0: matter of fact, uh, as I, as we're doing this interview, there's there's yeah. photos and videos all over Facebook of him jumping over the pyramids. Uh, photographer Juan Mera, a friend of mine, is you, actually you, doing yeah. a lot of the shots.
1: Yeah, it, it's 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 awe inspiring. You get open over the pyramids; there were tears in my eyes. It wasn't from freefall. It's mm. an amazing view. Um, and then last last Christmas, I spent on the South Pole. I went down there to jump. They won't let us jump on the South Pole because the last time people tried, three of them died. Three out of six. No, all um, right.
0: Do you know but, the Do yeah. you know the backstory to those fatalities?
1: Oh yeah, it's 1996, and I was taking people to the North Pole. I think it was my fourth North Pole expedition. And I was talking to him and saying, I'm going to try to jump the South Pole next year. I've got my permissions in order. So these six guys wanted to beat me down there. they people had taken in the North Pole. So they got a permit two weeks before mine and uh, went down there and didn't prepare. The air is very thin down there because the atmosphere is compressed. The density altitude is like six or 8,000 feet higher than it should be. Hmm. Um, and so they just hooked up in a four-way. And they got hypoxic, and one had an automatic opener, which saved his ass. The other three went in holding hands, you know? <laughs> well, uh, and, and so the... my, my permit was canceled, and I was unable to get another one for 20 years. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the story um,
0: that I had heard about that was that there was no AADs, and that they just had zero depth perception because of where they were jumping.
1: Oh, yeah. It, had no depth. it was an overcast day, and uh, the one survivor told me it looked like he was inside a white ping-pong ball. Oh, wow. You know? In every direction, it was the same color. And, and of course, they didn't use oxygen, um, so uh, which they should have.
0: Well, like you uh, said, they made all the mistakes over, on
1: the ground. Yeah, they made their mistake on the ground wow. in planning the trip. They made their mistake before they left the U.S. I've jumped over Everest now um, at 30,000 feet. Wow. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, CPS is making military jumps with landings above 20,000 feet as we speak. Isn't that amazing? Uh, right now. Um, yeah, it is amazing. Uh, it's Landing funny. Landing over 20,000 feet. have even jumped from 20,000 feet. How crazy <laughs> is that?
0: It's funny that uh, as we're talking um, and we're doing this interview, we finish up. I wake up tomorrow morning and I actually board a plane to Nepal because I'm going to be hiking up to Everest Base Camp.
1: Okay. That's that's a great trip. I, I recommend everyone do that hike. It's awe-inspiring. That's what I've been told. Um, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny to be looking down at the weather from a mountain,
0: you know, but do <laughs> right? it up there. So now what was the jump like? I mean, that had yeah. to have just been insane.
1: It's intense. We, we want, I wanted to circle Everest, but of course, China's on the other side from Nepal, and mm. they, we said we'd be shot down. Besides, there's a rule. You're not supposed to come really close. It's a sacred mountain. So we got about a quarter mile away, and the view is wonderful. It's nearly black. Uh, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of a black and white world up there with a very blue sky. Uh, and, uh, then we, uh, we jumped at an old rescue airstrip for when they used airplanes before helicopters. Um, the only airplane that could take us from that airstrip to 30,000 feet is Pilatus Porter. Helicopters can't do it. Hmm. Um, and they, they banned all single engine airplanes up there and, uh, we had to get permission, flew a a Pilatus Porter in from Switzerland Wow. and then coming back to the airport crashed and now there are no more. So no more 30,000 foot jumps. You can go to 26,000 and, um, and jump next to Everest now, but you can't go over it anymore.
0: Sure. Uh, well, and unless even, you flew
1: in with an aircraft Sure. Airport. I
0: mean, even the 26,000 foot
1: jump would be pretty damn spectacular just for the scenery alone. It's fun to be in free fall at 20,000 feet with mountains whizzing by you. <laughs> That's <laughs> you're in this big bowl. Everest isn't the only big one there. i is, is prettier in a way. And, um, uh, and so every way you look, you're below ground level, sort of. <laughs> wow, wow. So and now that's kind of, it's sort of like in the Alps, you know, but just a little bit higher.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, so uh, just skydiving in general, you've kind of hit every angle uh, between uh, instructing and jumping and, and being a part of uh, designing so much of the gear that all of us use every day. Uh, let's talk about the social aspect of skydiving. So you started back in the, the late 60s and early 70s. Um, was it the same kind of vibe as we have now? Because, uh, I mean, it, it again, it was the summer of love, so to speak, back then. I'd imagine that skydivers are pretty on the edge anyway. It must have attracted some pretty wild and crazy people.
1: Well, when I first started, the first few years, it seemed to be a bunch of guys with crew cuts. It seemed to be sort of military spilling in. There were no women at all. Hmm. Um, and it was, gear was cheap, so you didn't have to be, I mean, I bought my first rig for $100, main reserve, everything. Uh, you didn't have to be very well off. You spent a lot more time talking about it and sitting at bars drinking because a couple of jumps, your legs hurt a lot. Someone with 200 jumps was limping and that was the expert. That's where the D license 200 jumps was this guy got. Wow. Yeah, really three jumps in a day wow. is about all you could take because there was no flaring. You you hit like a bag of potatoes. Sure. Um, so it, it was a lot more time you would spend in your first year I mean, I made seventy-five jumps. Now kids in their first month make seventy-five. Sure. And I was I'd made a lot. Common to make twenty jumps a year and spend most of your time in bars talking about it. <laughs> uh, now we've kind of lost a lot of the social and people show up in their in their, their beamer and, and 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 make three jumps and leave. Sure. Um, some drop zones are nice. Drop zones with bars are better places uh, where you can socialize. Right. And there's so many other action sports now. Uh to take your mind away from skydiving. So I see people coming in and out more quickly. Sure. Well, Um, now what do you think? uh, And again, my personal opinion
0: has always been that the biggest draw to skydiving has been the social aspect of it. I mean, I love jumping and I love being in the air. I love flying the planes, but what's kept me personally in the sport for 25 years has ultimately been the community. Um, do you see that kind of changing? Well,
1: it's still around. Um, I was um, just out at the uh, Skydiving International Muse- Skydiving Museum Hall of Fame with all the old guys, uh, which was a lot of fun. Mm. In some cases, I was feeling fairly, and I'm seventy three, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and we were talking about this exact subject. But we were doing it at the bar and having a good time. Um, yeah, it, it is the social aspect is different. The whole world is different. Um, it was. Uh, Again, the military aspect where everyone's drinking all the time. Then we got into the 70s when everyone was doing drugs all the time. Sure. And now it's just more de- detached atmosphere. I don't know how any of us made it through the 70s. <laughs> uh, we we – I think the 77 meet, we had three fatalities in, in an hour and 15 minutes, and we found out that someone was putting LSD in the water containers by the loading area. Oh, my you God. Know, these kinds of things don't happen that much anymore. <laughs> yeah. No. Um I know it it's sick. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh wow, wow! I mean, part of me um, hears a story like that and wishes I had been there to see it all, and the other part of me is like, "Oh
1: fuck all that." <laughs> well, the the the, uh, the night that meet that that ten way meet was 110 10 way teams um, out of uh, probably fifteen DC threes at the drop zone. And then the Freak Brother conventions got even bigger. Oh, you know, when we'd have three thousand skydivers together for a week, which we don't see anymore. No. Uh, no. That was a real camaraderie. <laughs> you know, that's when you got you got skydivers got banned from entire towns, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I mean I, I can remember, remember Jake J C Penny with Scotty Carbone buying lingerie for the lingerie jump that they always did. A bunch of guys in lingerie. And the FAA was out there, and I was explaining to them uh, how safe and sane skydivers were. And here comes Scotty and 10 guys wearing little teddies and nothing else going heading for the airplane. I just shook my head. Oh,
0: God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's fine. I, I suppose that part hasn't changed because there's still a lot of nutcases. It just seems that anymore, um, a lot of the the uh, so I guess I guess you'd call them um, weekend warriors are out more for the Instagram pictures and then head on home. Uh, whereas back then, I mean, it was all about the, you know that lifestyle. It had to have been absolutely freaking amazing.
1: It was. It was all men. It was all men. Women came in and changed the vibe more than anything else. Uh before that could happen, the gear had to get lighter so they could pick it up. Mm. And, uh, but at the same time, I just met three very strong, big women who are tandem masters out at Paris. You know,
2: yeah.
1: so um, it's the, but the vibe is different with 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 women in the sport now than it was definitely. You know, it was guys before, and now the women civilize this as they have for centuries. Sure, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, drop zone is a
0: little- yeah. Make, make us behave just a little bit more. <laughs>
1: make so, us behave a lot better. Thank God. Right.
0: So now, as as we continue moving through the sport, what do you see? Do you, do you see any big innovations uh, coming up in the future? Do you see any uh, small changes? Is there anything to be looking for?
2: Well, in
1: 1974, we were jumping ram airs on three ring risers in a piggyback container system with a hand deploy pilot chute. Hmm. What are we jumping now? <laughs> exactly cool. the same thing. Yep. Now, the Rammers for a while got more dangerous <laughs> because they <laughs> got smaller. And now we have XRW wingsuits for big. Right. You know, I think back and I look at, at wingsuits and I look at base jumping, people tried the first – all the first parachute jumps were base jumps. We didn't have airplanes. Right. Then we had balloons. Right. And uh, so they were pretty much – all base jumps, wingsuits were tried in the 20s. And then again, in the 50s, almost everyone died. And what made wingsuiting and base jumping possible was a hand play pilot shoot. Right. Uh, because you need a pilot shoot now when you're base jumping. And in wingsuiting, you got a big burble to conquer, and that's the best way to do it. Right. So it's funny. That was not the intention of the hand play pilot shoot, but it ended up bringing back. Now, wingsuit is wingsuiting is wonderful. Oh, yeah. Unless you're talking okay. proximity flying, which is crazy i think they lost 18 jumpers one summer in switzerland yeah uh proximal line i know it's now is now listed as the number one most dangerous thing that humans do yep and yet people do it they accept the very high fatality rate in exchange for the thrill it's crazy isn't it Yeah, it's crazy we we rationalize and say it's not going to happen to me um i know and I've that's tried- why Totally safe. We'll uh, never be totally safe because people are willing to push the boundaries, of push course. the envelope. Of
0: course, we're always willing to to take that extra step and and push a little harder and go a little further and and test ourselves. You know, um, and
1: thank God that's that's the that's the hallmark of all progress. Absolutely, it's the only reason we're out of caves is people people push their luck. You know, yes. a few haven't died doing it, and everybody benefited from it. Um, so now that's that's, that's
0: so looking back on your career thus far uh do you ever scratch your head and wonder how it is you are the innovator for some of pretty much the most iconic game changers in the sport i mean from the hand deploy to the three ring to the sigma all this stuff were huge game changers i mean do you ever just sit back and go
1: how the fuck did this happen well if i hadn't if I'd left for my diving trip five minutes earlier or later, none of it would have. Right. I probably have made my first jump. You got to think about that. And I always ask people, how did you make your first jump? Especially the innovators in the sport to see how it would be if this guy never made their first jump. And it's, it's, it's an interesting exercise. It really is. Mm. Um, um, but yeah, I, I was in the right place at the right time with the right mentality. Um I'm, I'm a tinkerer, maybe an inventor. Mm. Um, if I thought the same way as everyone else, if I fit well into groups, if I had a lot of friends, I wouldn't have invented any of this stuff because inventing is a solo solitary art that only people who think differently from everyone else can do. Sure. Um, and you're simply born that way. You know, it, it's almost like being born with, with six fingers on your hand, you know, sure. <laughs> you make a great there. Uh, so I was born with the right mentality at the right time, and um, and I had the ability, especially when I was younger, to stick my neck out. Sure. Like I said, older people, generally after you're 30, you don't do anything. Mm. Einstein did all his great work before he was 30. Uh, most innovators do because that's when you – you haven't been beat down by the world yet. Sure, you aren't so worried about losing what you have. Sure, and fearlessness and hungriness is where all great achievement comes from. Sure, that you actually know? that that
0: that statement actually segues yeah. segues me into the one of the last things I want to talk to you about, and that's one of your favorite subjects, insurance.
2: <laughs> oh
1: yeah, yeah, insurance. Insurance is necessary. It was invented for in England for ships. Right, you know. Uh, but as you know, the name of my company is Uninsured United Parachute Technology. Yep. In in, hazard, in hazardous sports like this, where it's voluntary, insurance is what I call lawyer food. Hmm. Um, it it um, the first thing when I get sued, which is six times a year. First thing the lawyers ask us, who's your insurance company, and we tell them we don't have any. Right. And they just don't believe it. And usually they go away. Um, I fought for a long time to get uninsured as part of my name. The state of Florida wouldn't let me at first, (laughs) but I said, it's important important information. Sure. Uh, uh, In, in, uh, in, in Colorado, the ski industry was almost sued out of business mm -hmm. and they got the legislator to pass a law saying you can't ski. uh, You can't sue a ski center for, for your own stupid mistakes. Sure. Uh, We have, we're not big enough to get that law. So we just have waivers and, I've got to just can't stress enough that we've got to use waivers in the United States. People listening in other countries don't understand our legal system. Mm. But every night from ten to twelve o'clock, there's a string of lawyers advertising on television. Have you been hurt? Do you think your neck hurts? I can get you money. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's well, insane. I was uh, I was involved in,
0: in helping uh, try and work to defend a lawsuit against uh, uh, one of the drop zones that I worked on, uh, and it was for a, a drop zone owner that no one was a particularly large fan of, uh, which didn't make a damn bit of difference because that case absolutely had to win. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, uh, the day that the tandem waiver is beaten, skydiving yeah. is done. It's over in the United States because as soon as you open yeah. those floodgates, th- there is no more skydiving. There's not going to be a center in the world that's going to operate knowing that they could lose everything forever because of one stupid mistake made by somebody else.
1: And, and yet, yet there are dropstones in the United States that take 16 year olds. <sighs> I won't let them do it with my gear. All right. Because yeah, they sign a waiver, their parents sign a waiver, but it's no good. Mm. And almost Every sun operator says, well, I wouldn't let anyone go up without a waiver. And I said, that's what you're doing. And they simply refuse to believe it. So my, my fear is some cute little 16-year-old girl dies in a tandem jump. Sure. You know? Yeah. And people and, don't seem to understand
0: that uh, you cannot sign away a minor's rights. They, they, no, if they're no. not old enough to do it, you can't do it. And that's a, that's a do- huge legal problem.
1: It is. Now, 1918, this was a good year. There wasn't a single tandem fatality in the world. Hmm. Also in also in 2010. All right. This year has not been so good. There's been several. Hmm. But as we make more and more tandems, uh, you would expect there'd be more fatalities. That's why 2018 was a great year. I mean, millions of tandem jumps made. Nobody died. Um, Tandem right now, even though it's a more dangerous jump, is three to five times safer than solo jumping because sure. of the rules. I'm a child of the '60s. I hate rules, but damn, in this case, they work. I tried to make everything that will kill you on tandem illegal. You got to have an automatic opener. You got to have um, uh, an AAD. Uh, AAD. You got to have a MARD system on your tandem mm. rig. You're not allowed to jump tiny canopies. You're not supposed to swoop. You're not supposed to pull low. Sure. Those five things, if we if we put them into Solo sky, and you got to be well trained. Sure. We'll make it, you know, six. You got to be constant tra- constantly trained. If we did those six things in regular skydiving, we could uh, improve the fatality rate by five times. Oh, yeah. All right. It's all. So, in the lust for making the perfect rig, I realized that it's wasted effort. I should devote all my efforts toward education sure because again making the perfect Grig doesn't even dent the fatalities making the perfect jumper does
0: yeah absolutely right. well you know and and uh, luckily there's drop zone owners out there uh, that agree with you um, Rook Nelson being the newest one that just instituted the no jumping without an aad rule at Scott of Chicago yeah. uh, you're talking yeah, about it
1: started jumping an- Hey, Rook, Rook started tandeming at eight, though. Yeah. Broke every rule book. <laughs> right. Well, how funny is it, though, that it's the guys that uh, broke you all. You get older and you start having stuff. Oh, yeah. People, people with nothing don't worry about insurance. But sure. as soon as you, the drop zone has got a million dollars invested in airplanes, you know, now they're worried about losing everything they've worked for. Sure. Um, well, I remember when so- uh, when you guys
0: were still the relative workshop, and then the name changed to the uninsured relative workshop, and my first thought was
1: genius. It's fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> it says it all right there. Yeah, I know. I, again, it was a fight with the Secretary of State in Florida to uh, put that in there. They say, you can't do that. You know, so it's like I did it because I heard of a drop zone that lost a suit. And when the jurors were polled and they went, what? There's no insurance? They're going to lose their house? Their kids can't go to college? What have we done? Can we change the verdict? Mm. I decided you can't tell jurors that a trial there's no insurance. So the only way I could do it was putting it in the name, and if we ever get before a jury, we've never gotten that far because the waiver is good. Yeah. The first question my lawyer is going to ask me is, you know, what's the name of your company again? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and. and- that's exactly what it's for. Um, sure. I get lawyers calling me all the time, we retained to sue you until we looked at the name and just started laughing. Oh. <laughs> you know?
0: it, I mean, it really was a stroke of genius because it all in one fell swoop, it says everything you need to know. And of course, uh, as a jumper, it, it not only tells everybody, don't bother suing us, we've got no insurance, but it also says, hey, everybody that does this shit takes responsibility for themselves. Uh, and I'm sure you would agree. I don't know of a single dead skydiver uh, that I've known over all the years that would want want anyone to sue anybody for something that happened to them.
1: That's no. the trouble with tandem, there's someone that the, the parents uh, don't know that there's has got They haven't accepted it and they go up and they die in their first jump. Yep. And that's where all the lawsuits come from. Yeah, um, I mean, I think right now as stupid as it says, if I knew the trouble it was going to cause me, I perhaps would not have ever started tandem. Hmm. Um, I mean, I am at any one time, Fighting minimum of three lawsuits, um, and you know what's the first thing um, that you stop spending on when you got to spend on lawyers? Your R and D budget. Sure. So these lawsuits stop us from spending money and making the gear better. Um, it's it's a real shame. Yeah. Uh, but it's life in the United States, and yeah. uh, so sending people constantly training, 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 training. It's the best insurance. That I can give the whole my my whole it's the whole sport sure. is to make sure that the tandem instructors are trained and we pull ratings yes. and uh, people do stupid things no. and yet drops an you saw just a few years ago they were they they started using a lot of tandem masters that had no training sure and when the second fatality came we figured it out yep and and insisted that all those people be retrained
0: they Wait. had ratings
1: but they. They just you know it's a pencil pack, basically, yeah, yeah, when
0: it, yeah. especially when you're talking about tandems, which is really our only um it's an it's an amazing avenue into the general public. You can't tarnish that reputation by having people that don't know what the fuck's yep. going on,
1: you know you know there's a tipping point, there's a tipping point when everybody in the world has either made a tandem jump or knows someone that has right, okay, And when we hit that tipping point, tandem can really explode. Um, I'll tell you, skydive the beach down in Australia. Started on a you know little beach drop zone, and then he kept buying drop zones. And now yeah. he owns them in New Zealand too. And they're a publicly <laughs> traded company. And the first year I looked at them, they they pulled in eighty-eight million dollars. You know? And now I understand it's two or three hundred million dollars. That's larger than the entire parachute construction in, in, industry in the world. Wow. Okay. Wow. You see how big wow. tandem can be. Wow. You go into that place. You've got a couple of attractive women in blazers behind a marble desk and a chandelier. Uh, the building matches the airplanes, matches the jumpsuits. They're cleaned every day. All right. Like this. And you're treated like you're checking into the Hilton. Hmm. All right. And it, it, most U S drop zones don't look like that. right? You know, Rook Nelson's right. is one that does and Chicago's got two wonderful drop zones. Um, they look like they're professional uh, organizations. Sure. And so you feel a lot safer.
2: And Absolutely. If, if we had
1: that, skydiving could, could really, really take off. Sure. And don't throw away your people. There's no more enthusiastic person to sell on skydiving than someone that's just made a tandem jump.
0: Oh,
2: no.
1: You know?
0: You know, it's it's kind of funny because I, I think all the way back to my very first jump. And again, uh, like... Pretty much everybody in the sport that I know, my very first introduction to skydiving by a person was you sitting behind a desk with that that brown paneling behind you telling me what I was about to do could kill me, and it was my fault, and that I couldn't sue anybody, and that if I did sue anybody, I'd have to pay my own expenses— and I remember yeah. doing the exact same thing that I watched happen thousands of times. Once I had become an instructor and was putting people in front of that video, I giggled and thought, "Yep, all right, that sounds about right." And it's so funny that they uh, right. yeah. had a lawyer sitting behind the camera,
1: going, "Stop smiling!" You know, say, <laughs> <laughs> "Why do you look so glum?" And I said, "I was required to look glum. Yeah. This is serious. This isn't." You know? Yeah, you don't um, you don't want to look you know,
0: cheerful when you're talking about how different ways you can kill yourself doing
1: what you're about to do. And just out at Paris I was watching, they have someone read a statement saying, I have seen the waiver, I have signed it, I realize yep. I may die doing this. And they videotape that. Yep. I wish every drop zone would do that. Yeah, man. It's a, um, it's a different I world. No, yeah. It is a different I hope no one ever dies in skydiving. I really do. Uh, again, it was devastating. Uh, the first time it happened to my equipment. Sure, but um, you know what can you do? You no. can't stop. No, because I think I've helped by not stopping. Um, I want to make it better, and if the lawyers will let us, we can grow. Sure, you know the reason everyone's got these nice sky vans and 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 uh, twin turbine aircraft to jump out of is tandem jumping. Sure, and we've got to preserve it. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a lawyer. This couple went to a drop zone and. Uh, She was going to make it. He was going to make a jump and she was filming everything. And they were going around asking everyone at the drop zone. Is this really safe? Can you get hurt? Every single video reply, because these were lawyers, every single video reply of every jumper in the drop zone. Yes, this is dangerous. They were going there to try to prove that the people weren't warned. (laughs) And they they actually sent us the tape. And I said, I don't know what you guys are doing, but all skydivers seem very well trained around new people. And no one says, ah, it's a piece of cake. You can't get hurt. (laughs) You
0: know. <laughs> oh yeah. No, that um, used to be one of my favorite answers as a tandem instructor when I would have a potential student asking me, Is this dangerous? Could I die? Yep, sure could. Yep.
1: Yeah, sure <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> sometimes I wonder sometimes I wonder if there were no fatalities when people still jump. Yeah. You know, I think I said that before. Yeah. I mean they they might I, do
0: it once as a lark, but no, I think the big again, we talked about the fact that there's always a spike in business when there's a fatality. It's because people wanna know shit could go sideways.
1: Yeah, an airline crash uh, publicizes the name of the airline, you know, and people forget what why they remember the name of the airline. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Crash. And their business goes up. Of course it does. Um, that's... I'm 73. I still haven't figured out people yet.
0: No. I'll tell you what. I don't uh, – if you do, you're going to be a, a hell of a lot uh, more advanced than the three rings and the tandem stuff because that's the tricky one is the
1: people. Yeah. So – Why – why? I, what people need to – they do need to get off their ass and come up with better stuff. I mean, it's been 40 years, and uh, we're still jumping the same stuff we were jumping.
0: Yeah, but it fucking
1: works, boy. 80, 80, 2004. You know, it, it it's, uh, it's 40 years. Yeah, it and w- nothing's changed. Yeah.
0: It it works good though. So now, let me ask as we uh, wrap things up: Have have you got any good advice? And I always ask this of everybody: Good advice for people that are just getting into the sport, and advice for people that are maybe deciding whether or not they should stay in the sport. What would you say to either of those groups?
1: You know, there's a skydiver resurrection society and they're, they're devoted to get people who quit to come back. I just ran into them out at the museum. Um, anyway, go slow. All right. You don't need to be jumping a 76 square foot canopy when you get 50 jumps. Right. All right. Don't try to do too much. Uh, A lot of people that come in for a tandem say, when can I wingsuit? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. So Again. go slow. Um, and, uh, don't progress too quickly. Uh, practice, practice, practice. I think you're probably safest right out of training because you have just practiced emergency procedures, you know, and and the more and more jumps you get. I watch scuba divers inspect other people's gear before they dive. I never see skydivers do that. Right. Um, I I was in an airplane years ago and I saw this girl from England sitting there with three rings that were made terribly. And I went over to her and said, I don't want to scare you, but I think you ought to land in the airplane because – if you have a spinning malfunction, you're not going to be able to break it away. And she went, ah, who the hell are you? So she went and jumped. And as she was walking back, I got two guys. We picked her up by her risers. And I said, break away. And after three minutes of trying and sobbing and crying, she got the idea. Right. You know? So you got to care about the other people on the airplane with you. Sure. Look for stuff. Yeah. You know? There well, was a photographer wearing a front-mounted camera in the old days. You know, in his chest, a recorder. Right. That people in the airplane let jump without his gear on. No one paid any attention to him. Yep. He didn't yep. have. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And he got to. Film it. Yeah. So I'm saying, keep your friends safe and uh, and keep yourself safe. Practice. Be observant. If you see someone doing something dangerous, don't laugh it off. If yep. you see someone with uh, with with bad gear, educate yourself. I understand. Two-thirds of jumpers can't put together a three-ring now. Right. This is not good. No, it's not. This is not good.
0: It's not. The training yeah. needs to be upped. And, and there's a lot of places that have pushed really hard on training, but uh, definitely the mentoring and the just looking out for people. Uh, I think you're dead on with that. Absolutely.
1: You, I go to some drop zones, and the, the, the mood is absolutely different, you know. Um, and uh, that's really neat, the ambiance. Sure. Between Paris and Elston, are probably like two different worlds, you know. Oh, <laughs> for yeah. For instance, I was just a- – Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, yeah. I know,
0: Bill. I'll tell you what, man. I, 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 I seriously hope to see some uh, some more innovation coming out of you guys. I mean, obviously, the stuff that you've already done has has changed a lot of people's lives. Certainly, mine. I wouldn't be a Scott Ever if it weren't for the shit that you've done. Um, and uh, you. between the the innovation with the gear and then sitting down to tell stories, I, I just I can't thank you enough. Not just for the podcast, but for my career. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's cool. It's nice. You know, I solved these problems for myself and to solve the problem, but I must admit it's really nice when someone comes up and says, Hey, you just saved my life. Yeah. It does feel good. Yeah, man. I know?
0: I mean I, I can attribute eleven thousand times that the stuff that you did yourself has affected my life in a positive way. That's some shit right there.
1: I actually think that everybody ought to go put on old gutter gear. And ripcord deploy, a 20-foot <laughs> yeah. round and landed a couple times, and then, then they're going to kiss the parachute industry for what they've done uh, right. since I started. Me, but but everybody in it has done a wonderful job at, at making skydiving comfortable, fun, and safe. Yeah, and um, yep. I could It's going to get, get better. You know, I foresee the next thing that's going to happen is in materials when we get synthetic spider silk. And our pack volumes go down by a factor of three. Wow. We'll probably just have our main in our right blue jean pocket and the reserve left blue jean pocket, and we'll just throw the whole thing out. Uh at this
0: know. yeah, at this point, I don't think anything would surprise me with the advances that have come i mean uh, I'm sure my twenty five years in the sport seem to have flown by. I'm sure it's the exact same for you and the the night and day difference with the, at least the canopy stuff is just insane and and for guys like you that are pushing forward and and innovating and and coming up with these amazing ideas, it's just i mean wow well
1: i'll give you i'll give you i I've, I've had this design in my head for a few years now um the way wingsuits are getting, I've seen them go up. Uh, oh, I've yeah. seen people do RW, and the guy lands the canopy that was just for the wingsuit. <laughs> so, my next invention is this little pod that you were in front. All right. And uh, as you come down, you flare your wingsuit over the runway, and it drops landing gear like the space shuttle. Okay. <laughs> and, at the, and as your wheels touch, it deploys a drogue behind you so you won't tumble. You know. And so I'll be out of the gear manufacturing. I'll be in the landing gear and still using drugs. Um, (laughs) I I I guarantee. You know, that's all they need is landing gear. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. If they don't have to lay out 80,000 cardboard boxes, I guarantee it's going to start happening. That or the occasional random tree that luckily saves somebody.
1: (laughs) Actually, uh, you know, Aikens that jumped into the net. I listened to his presentation at the museum function in Paris. Hmm. Wow. of planning went into that incredible amounts of engineering went into that it wasn't easy no you know no no just I like the net a half a second before he hit it all right so it could be beginning free fall and that he didn't trust any computers and machines to do it he had a friend on the button you know wow <laughs> it was really interesting and i i didn't think i'd be so fascinated with it but listening to him i went wow that's a lot of work you did for that I'd, one jump. You, you know <laughs> what?
0: I think I'd actually like to hear uh, a little bit more about it because I've got, to, um I'm sure, wrong set opinions about that particular jump. I'm I'm not a big yeah, it, fan it, of that kind of stuff. He's
1: very, safe and sane. he's very safe and sane. Knew exactly what he was doing and pulled it off. Yeah. But yeah. he'd make a good interview. That's what I was thinking.
0: Well, and and hats off to him for sure. I mean, nobody's going to gonna say he doesn't have a huge set of wavos to pull that shit off. <laughs>
1: He did. He explained why they went from twenty-five thousand feet, and uh, and why he didn't hit the center of the net, and all these things. The questions you want to ask are all sure. there with explanations. Uh, that, well, that's um, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, most of these yeah. things are like, and of course, you can listen um, uh, to the uh, the space jump. You know. Sure. Um, sure. The, the the amount of planning that went into that—that that was the other speaker right there. You know. Right. So those two guys. And they're famous for this one little thing, but this one little thing was years of work. Yeah, oh, um, absolutely. And um, that, um, well, that, that's just the way it is. What, what seems simple is really years and years and years of work. Well, and I don't um, think there's, there's anybody it, in the sport. I don't, they, I don't. they just show. One day, you know.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's anybody in the sport that would know better about putting years and years and in innovation and ideas into skydiving. I mean, you've you've pretty much been there since. Well, shit, since the beginning. Uh So, uh,
1: yeah, wow.
0: <laughs> I yeah,
1: tell you, like well, so, you know these guys. When you listen to what they did, and we were in on that, you get very impressed with the engineering that goes into these seemingly simple things. Sure um not they're not well so. just
0: the engineering that goes into something like a throw out pilot shoot i mean life-changing really pretty spectacular stuff from a very simple idea
1: you know when you see a service man you go up and say thanks for your service i, I would say all the young jumpers when they see the old timer walking around the drop zone go up and shake his hand and say thanks for your service yeah man yeah man for <laughs> sure well they and, put and, up with you could have a good time.
0: And again, let me uh, let me be the the one to say it uh, yet again, Bill. Besides sitting and, and uh, shooting the shit with me on the podcast, thank you so much for all the ideas, even if they were initially done just for yourself. Thank you. I mean, I, I I can't even imagine what life would be like if you hadn't done the the crazy shit that you've done.
1: Well, I appreciate that very much. I've got a legacy, I guess, and I'm 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 proud. The only nice thing about getting older, I tell my friends, is at least. Now I know how my life is going to turn out. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, <laughs> the Bill... old kids at have a clue. You do not have a clue where no. you're going.
0: No, no. Well, I can I can be the first to say at fifty, I'm just starting to get a grasp on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. a half an hour before it happened, I never knew where my life was going. You right. know, one little list changed everything. So. Right. Well, Bill, hey, yeah.
0: thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and tell some stories. I, uh, I I already want to put a bookmark in it and try and get you back on down the road because there's so many more things that I want to talk to you about. But thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: My pleasure. We'll do one called uh, Jump Stories from the Old Days. Perfect. Um,
0: <laughs> I want to hear all the craziness, man.
1: <laughs> okay. Thank you very much.
0: Take care, Bill. Blue skies. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Sports. you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the extreme sports collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs rigging courses, and more. Buy Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. Go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting edge stuff to come. Buy Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, we'll see you next time.